but it's only days So I'll meet you at the cemetery gates Keats and Yates are on your side I dread it's sunny days So I'll meet you at the cemetery gates Keats and Yates are on your side Wild, wild is on mine So we go inside and we gravely read the stones All those people, all those lives, where are they now? With the loves and hates and passions just like mine They were born and then they lived and then they died Seems so unfair, I want to cry Throws the sun down salutation to the dawn And you claim these words as your own But I've read well and I've heard them said A hundred times, maybe less, maybe more If you must write pros and points The words you use should be around Don't plagiarize or take on When you fall, we'll trip you up and laugh when you fall. You say London do dust words which could only be your own. And then produce the text from whence was ripped some dizzy whore, 1804. I dread it's sunny day, so let's go where we're happy and then meet you at the cemetery gate. So Sunny day, so let's go where we're wanted and I meet you at the cemetery gates. Keats and Yates are on your side, but you lose. Cause where the love of wild is on the And that was the Smiths with the track Cemetery Gates from the, uh, from the album The Queen Is Dead. I'm David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should. As always, playing the finest in indie pop, and this week it does encompass also a bit of folk rock or folk punk, depends which way you look at it, because we always like a special guest, and this week it's going to be the turn of The Men They Couldn't Hang, because I caught up with Phil Otters recently to find out about life, love and poetry and all that sort of groovy stuff. So I've got that interview that I'm going to break up into about four or five easy to digest little segments. But to kick off the show, I think we should start with your favourite of mine. This is Iron Masters from the album Night of a Thousand Candles. And only I am masters 
and stuff that was the men they couldn't hang the track titled iron masters and that came from their 1987 album night of a thousand candles 87 which i put down as probably the best year of music ever so there you go and for lots of good reasons you just have to see what albums were released but anyway this week i caught up with phil odgers well actually i caught up with him a few months ago to talk about life in the band and also creating new music and also they're going to be on tour and they're going to be in norwich at the waterfront on the 24th of november so do check that out and they do have a new album titled cocker hoop so a lot to get through but uh, like i said i've got that interview broken up into about three or four easy-to-digest little segments for the rest of the show. But I think we should have another track for the before the first bit of the interview, and this is titled Colours. Take it away. I am a member of the Council of the Naval Mutiny I'm no traitor to my conscience Having done my sworn duty These are my last words before the scaffold and I charge you all to hear Our wretched British sailor Became a citizen mutiny A president a service To carry powder I was locked to the crack of the whip If I starved on the streets of Bristol I'd starve worse on a British ship Red is the color of the new republic By the words of Thomas Paine On my barren soil they fell like The sweetest drops of rain Red is the color of the new republic All you laborers of the land, all you beggars 
And that was The Men They Couldn't Hang on the track called The Colours. This is David Esau. This is The C86 Show. A bit later on, I will tell you how you can contact me if you so wish. But anyway, this is going to be the first part of my interview that I had with Phil Odgers from the band. And uh, this is where we began by talking about the early days and those, uh, yes, back in the 80s. And the musical scene that was um, around at that time, which obviously there was the mainstream, which was very big hair, big shoulder pads and everybody living the dream. And then the indie scene and the world of the Socialist Workers' Party and Red Wedge and all that kind of groovy stuff. So I wanted to find out a bit about where the band fitted. And this was Phil's answer. Phil, take it away. Yeah, exactly. I think it's like um, like you were saying, the 80s, you know, it was a big time. It was big hair, but there was a big time. There's so many bands from that time um, still. And I think part of it was you had the mainstream music. You had, uh, you know, you had the, the sort of, the, the run out or the runoff from the punk scene in a way. So that was kind of still a, a, a big influence and still, you know, made its mark very much even on the mainstream. But then you had these other bands in there um, in the charts and so on. And I think that for people like ourselves and the Pogues and some of those other guys and gals <laughs> we uh, knew around that time, there was a kind of, you know, there was a sort of disenchantment with what, what was going on musically, you know. Um, but also as a time in our lives for the men they couldn't hang, it was a time when we were uh, young men and women and we were broke and we were just sort of living in squats and hanging out and doing what we what all young people do. Uh, um, but as a sort of a way to kill time and as a way to sort of raise a bit of cash for ourselves, <laughs> cushion myself and Paul, uh, we would go down to Hammersmith. We lived around Hammersmith and Shepherd's Bush at that time. And we'd go around to the subways in Hammersmith and we'd just do a bit of busking. And, you know, I mean, for Kirsch and I, we could only play three chords, you know. <laughs> and we sort of found that, you know, the, the sort of country song, country style things. When I say country, I'm talking about stuff like Rawhide and High Noon, you know, <laughs> uh, that sort of thing. And Irish songs, um, which was many kind of uh, sort of folk songs and many Irish people passing through Hammersmith and, uh, you know, things like that kind of turned ahead and a, a bit of the cash went into the, the guitar case. Um, and so that sort of became our sound. And uh, we amazingly, we had no plan. There was no design, no plan to kind of really start a band. I'd been in a band before and I probably had dreams. I wanted to do that still, but um, we were spotted by a couple of people and we were friends with um Shane and Spider from the Pogues and we got asked if we'd want to do a gig with, you know together with them and all those bands at the same time they were borrowing musicians and instruments off each other uh we on our first gig we used the Pogues drummer and accordion player we didn't have um a, a drummer of our own and a lot of those bands were just thrown together again it was all still for a laugh really but quite quickly, Phil Chevron, who who later went on to join the Pogues, but at that time was from the Radiators from Out of Spain, uh, an Irish band. And uh, he saw us and he introduced us to Elvis Costello, who very quickly made us a record offer. And um, we recorded our first single, which was Green Films of France. Uh, and in fact, at the time, he was saying you could do walk and talking, which was one we were doing, but he said it would be, it could be a hit <laughs> and it'd be dangerous to be a hit because it'd be a quick hit. It'd be a novelty. There'd be a flash in the pan. The band wouldn't have any kind of longevity, you know, and now we're looking back 34, 30, <laughs> you know, years later and it definitely worked. Um, so that was it really. It was just like a bit like a dream come true, you know, um, just having a laugh, mucking around. I think that's where the best things happen in terms of music. Um, and, we got spotted. We were in the right time in the right place. Um, and we started making records, taking things a bit more seriously. Well, as a lot of people would argue with that, but, uh, you know, <laughs> attempting to take things a little bit more seriously. And uh, hey, presto, we're still doing it. Doing it. Yes. Well, it's interesting having spoken to a lot of bands at that period because there were several things that people, why people did music. One was there, there was no, there was nothing else to do. There was yeah. know, high unemployment. And also there was the Great Enterprise Allowance Scheme, which gave a, a couple of people that year to be a musician, at least not to be on the dole and give themselves some form of self-esteem. And it was interesting you mentioned Elvis Costello because one of the best bands, you know, the support bands, you know, we, we yeah. you know, you get to 
an age in life sometimes when I, I you know, probably shouldn't say this, but you sort of have enough of support bands, um, <laughs> you, you know, as a punter, not as another musician. Yeah, so you probably yeah. feel different. But I remember seeing Elvis Costello and the support band at that time was were the Pogues. And and there was only like five people watching them because everyone else had sort of scattered to the back and to the bar and, yeah. and was trying to ignore them. And I was kind of captivated by them. I thought, God, this is extraordinary, you know, because folk was kind of OK, but it was kind of quite traditional until the pokes and you you came along and yeah. you and you made it suddenly a little bit more i say a little bit more that's an understatement incredibly exciting so i had to go out and get that first album they did and uh, and then obviously your your album came along as well so there were there felt yeah. like there was this kind of period where you know a certain kind of musical zeitgeist a combination of punk and folk that went together so well yeah and you know the thing is that at that time to do folk music was like to do punk music because it was, yeah, it went against the grain. It wasn't uh, uh, something, you know, now it's much, I, I think we were fighting against the established folk scene as well. That was already there, but to have folk with a kind of like up-tempo, a uh, bit of anger, not to worry about tuning too much, I suppose getting more tips from things like Woody Guthrie and that sort of thing, you know, but um, yeah, it had, energy and it had enthusiasm you know and in fact what what, what was that gig do you remember what that gig was where you saw the post yeah that was episode? that was the uea in norwich oh, the ua yeah yes. because we did uh, we did what they called a month of sundays at um in in shepherd's bush um at the hammersmith palais uh, well the hammersmith really i suppose yeah. um and i solo played every sunday for a month um in that year 1984 i believe uh and the pogues and ourselves were the were the support we were the opening bands for that but i think by that time the scene was starting to develop and um we picked up a lot of people from elvis costello's uh, you know, entourage actually. Um, his crew started working for us, some of them, um, but from his audience too. Yes, yeah. and obviously there was another time. There was another thing that was happening, which was, I suppose, there was the festy scene, and you know, like the travellers, and and that kind of, you know, the um, social socialist workers' party and red wedge and stuff like that. Yeah. So, so people were ready for this kind of. I suppose, you know, you call it rebel rousing kind of yee-haw, the masses about to rise. And you didn't have to sort of be technically, like you said, you didn't have to even be in tune sometimes. But, you know, we'd, you know, I'd grown up a little bit with my brother's record collection and it was prog, a lot of prog rock in there, an awful lot of prog rock. And, you, you know, technicality was everything. Whereas suddenly this was much more, you know, stuff that you normally heard around a campfire or, you know, in someone's truck suddenly being on stage. And, and you know, talking about, you, you mentioned the drummer of the Pogues. I was a bit amazed because he was just standing there behind one yeah. drum while Spider <laughs> had a beer tray smacking his head yeah. against it with his tin whistle. So, you know, it did have an, a very anarchic kind of quality to it, didn't it? Yeah, there was that anarchic quality. And I think as well, that kind of have a go philosophy and attitude. And I still encourage that today. Um, you know, if I pe speak to people, they say you can't play guitar, I'll show a song that's got two chords. You know, um, I have every Christmas I have a do round at mine. We started off, it's like just the immediate family. And one day a guitar came out and started singing a song. And then the next Christmas, a couple of people wrote guitars. And now we get people who just friends come round and we uh, we have a load of people together and the, the guitar goes round. But if you can't play the guitar, the idea is just sing a song or tell a story or, you know, bang a tambourine. It doesn't it's not about the ability and the the skill or the you know the, the you know, spending years and years learning musical theory it's about just getting up and having a go yes yeah. which is always good now yeah. the, the one thing that i've noticed doing these interviews is that um and i hadn't appreciated this at all was that most bands have this five-year narrative they get together slightly by mistake they make a sound and and um often you know it, you know it's in front of their you know mates at a club mm -hmm. if john peel sort of picked it up and gave it a play it kind of would give them that little bit of a bounce on to do possibly a john peel session but definitely a little bit more of a wider audience and then they did the first album and then, you know, the second album, a bit tricky. If anybody ever did America, you know, they came back like that was it. You know, the band were virtually over. So, you know, you had quite a similar, you know, a little bit longer than the five-year theory that I've developed over the years because you sort of managed to sort of creep, creep over five years. So how was your narrative in that, that phase one? 
Well, I think phase one, I think it was uh, because, like you're saying, it's so unexpected and unprepared for. So we just rolled along and it was like one massive party. Um, and we got to the second album and the third album. And I think that, you know, by what people tell me who, who still see us, you know, the, the album's just got better. The third album by many is considered to be our best album. For most bands, it's, the, you know, it's the difficult third album and it could be, it often is the end yes. of many bands. Um, but we were just, we, I think, because we were just thrilled with it all. We were thrilled with the fact of going into a studio and working with, you know, uh, uh, you know, producers who, who really knew what they were doing. And also, I think they realised that, the, the thing wasn't to turn us into some kind of really smooth, polished act. It was just to sort of pull the best out of us and the songs and bring the lyrics to the fore. So, yeah, we got through that, you know, um, uh, and and continue. We did have a little break. I can't remember what year it was, but we had, we thought we would, you know, we thought we'd had enough of each other. Basically what happened is we were traveling in each other's pockets for months and months at a time through Europe and the Canada and Japan and Australia and, and so on um, in very close quarters. And you get to know, although we were mates to start with, you get to know each other very, very well, too well, perhaps, and um, kind of get on each other's nerves a bit. And uh, we, we thought we'd take a break, but then it's almost like it's in the blood. It's like an addiction. Once you've started, it's very, very, very difficult to stop. And I think as well, a lot of bands don't get the opportunity to, kick it back again and pick it up again because uh, you lose you, people don't realize how difficult it is to build up a following and how easy it is to lose that following um with the men we've always been always been in the bar at the gig <laughs> you know we yes. always you know hang out with everyone and just take each day as it comes really yes. there's no no sort of uh, no one behind us no manager or, or or guru giving us advice uh, on how we should be. Indeed, wise words there. That was Phil Odgers from The Men They Couldn't Hang. And as I said, they have a new album that's out called, titled Cocker Hoop. And also they're going to be playing a load of dates throughout the autumn. So if you want to find out any more information, go to their website or Facebook page and you'll see it. But I know they're going to be in Norwich at the end of November at the waterfront. Anyway, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show and I will be there. But I think we should play another track before a bit more of that interview with Phil. But this is titled Johnny Come Home. Johnny came to London just a looking for a job. Johnny saw the sights, but he didn't see a job. Johnny joined a circus round a big little bear. And Johnny sold his body anytime and anywhere. Johnny come on.
here. That is another track taken from the album Night of a Thousand Candles to our title Johnny Come Home. This is going to be the second part of my interview with Phil from The Men They Couldn't Hang, where we talk about that period in 1991 when they decided to call it a day. And I just wondered if they'd come to a moment or whether it had been brewing. This is Phil's answer. Phil, take it away. Well, I think it can happen in many different ways. Uh, and I think, you know, it, from other people I've seen, it can happen because you're just really fed up with each other. Or we actually physically start fighting. <laughs> you know, um, it can happen because you want to have a family. You want, you know, you're at a certain time um, in your life and certain people are thinking about settling down and, and having a family. Or, you know, they get back together with the band when the divorce comes through, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and uh, then sometimes it's an ego thing as well, where, you know, one member of the band or more, um, want to do their solo thing and we've had all of those <laughs> you know, but we still kind of get you know we still gel and it still works so um, yes. yeah you know it's all uh, good stuff it's yeah because yeah, I, didn't, I didn't realise that um there was an interesting connection. This is a really, you know, really thin connection, but one that I quite like is that you supported David Bowie at Milton yeah. Keynes as part of his Sound and Vision tour, which was interesting because when you reformed, you reformed with Kenny Harris, who was the drummer with the Screaming Blue Messiahs. Yeah. And I did an interview with Kenny, and um, he said that one of the, I suppose it was a difficult one, that David Bowie suddenly liked their first album and he got them to play on his... Um, his 1987 tour, which was the Never Let Me Down one, which he said, you know, Kenny said it was a bit too soon for the band. They weren't really up for it. But it was interesting that you both had this experience of uh, supporting David Bowie. So what was it like to to be there for for the Bowie gig? Well, it was amazing. I didn't realise we both had that um, uh, similar kind of experience. But uh, it was strange because so we did two nights at Milton Keynes Bowl. And uh, it was strange to be on that stage because the stage had literally had footprints painted on the stage for where Bowie would stand for a certain song. Um, so the lights would be all set up for him. And so he literally standing in his footsteps on the stage. Um, when he arrived um, in the backstage area, which was massive, you know, it was there would probably be a couple of hundred people there in one capacity or another, you know, in the bars and all the various backstage activities. Um, but the, he arrived in a helicopter in a field just nearby and was driven in a limousine backstage. And the entire backstage of, like I say, a couple of hundred people had to be cleared, except my sister-in-law, because she was... She had a, a newborn baby and, the, and she was feeding the baby. So she was allowed to stay there. Um, so on that level, there was this kind of seemed, seemed to be this sort of aloofness. But I think that was encouraged by management and so on, because we'd met David Bowie before in a tiny little club. Gaz's Rocking Blues. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yes. Place, yeah, I yeah, remember that. He used to be in Soho. And I remember he came in there one time. And he was dancing with Shan, our bass player. Um, he was just a friendly, friendly guy. You know, I don't think he was at all aloof. I think he's a very down-to-earth person. Um, so, yeah, you know, it was... We were overwhelmed in a way. I mean, and playing to an audience that big um, was... That was a first for us. And also a first for us was on the second day. The last song we did was Laughing Gnome. And we were glared at by... David Bowie's <laughs> minders and crew and management and everything. And, uh, you know, we knew if we'd played that as a first song on the first day, we wouldn't be doing the rest of it. But we just thought, hey, what now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. No, I just wondered how you managed to get the gig, because I think sometimes it is that thing that, um, especially at that level, I think it is it was Bowie who would say who who he wanted. And I, I, I seem to remember on that previous tour, which was the 87 one, that he had people like New Model Army as well. Yeah, so, I think it was special, you know, it was a request from Bowie, but I'm not certain, but I've got a feeling it was something to do with his son as well, yeah. Right, and then yeah. when you sort of came back, you know, this is the mid-90s, because obviously you finished, there was just that, you know, I, I don't. it seems like a long time ago, but it was that sort of, the whole anti-poll tax period, you know, Thatcher mm. stand down, we had the major mm. years, and then you sort of came back on the wave of almost new labour and and sort of the Britpop period. So when you sort of entered the, the musical arena again, did it feel like you were all that bit, you know, having that sort of space of five years, that little bit wiser? Yeah, I guess so. Um, there was a difference, I think. Yeah, we were, we were a bit wiser. I think we were... Um, what's the word? We were more prepared for things in the sense of, you know, you know we knew... 
uh, we weren't so awestruck by record companies. Um, I think probably shortly after that, we started kind of looking after ourselves. It was difficult for anyone to manage us anyway. But um, yeah, wiser, I guess, is the best way to say it. I mean, although I look at us today and I think we're still no wiser, really. We still make the same mistakes and we still muck up a lot of things and upset some people but we only upset people in the way that uh mates upset each other and we just get a bit you know like, like i say we still treat gig quite like a party i'm surprised we are uh, you know haven't gone through several heart attacks yet but uh, i'm sure that's on the horizon but, uh, yeah because <laughs> you must but, have been yeah. you must have been amazed when you saw bands like Le- the levelers who started out in a very similar sort of traveling way yeah. doing their festies and suddenly appearing at these kind of i suppose like the nec or wembley arena you know these massive concerts um, yeah. They hadn't quite got to the Bowie stage, but they had definitely got up to the Glastonbury main stage phase for a period. And you thought you must have thought, God, that's that was kind of the outcome of us and the Pogues and people like that. In some ways, and there's bands that uh, we've spoken to uh, more like uh, American bands, really, I think that kind of really tag us down as a as a as a reference and a sort of inspiration point and they're younger and they're what i would say is the kind of like the new generation but they're much more based on sort of an irish punky sound than um than say the levelers for instance but uh with the levelers i i think that because the pogues also split and uh, the men took their break and i remember at one time i was at one of the heineken big top festivals talking to the organizers there and they were the guy was saying you're you're mad you know to split up now and the levelers were just coming through and it's i suppose it's almost like sort of divisions of football and uh, you know but um they were they were rising up and um and good for them uh their audience was totally different to ours i mean they had the kind of like you say the sort of the the, the travelers or crusties or whatever you wanted to call them <laughs> at the time which was a very very loyal following and could really identify with um the messages that the levers had in their in their songs and still do um you know our audience meanwhile were sort of taking a, a break along with us and you know get a proper job and, <laughs> and you know raising families and um and now they're coming back to see us again but uh yeah i mean the great thing i think with the levelers as well is that they are still going you know because there's so many of those bands that just you know got to that stage and from one reason you know burnt out as you, i think you said earlier um but they still still going and still got a very uh, loyal and faithful uh, fan yes. base well i think it's also dealing with this sort of the, that sort of, it's an amazing sort of you could almost have a chart on the you know in the boardroom of the you know the record not even the record label just the band the band's boardroom you know like you know looking at the sort of the size of the gigs going from the pub to the art centers to the university then the arena and then it's like okay and now you're going down back to the art centers again and i think with the levelers again they've you know they obviously hit the really high point and then they've obviously gone back and are kind of happy with the sort of the smaller venues whereas some bands are just thinking well this is quite a nice gig and we'll we'll keep it going because the one artist that I always really admired was Lemmy from Motorhead because yeah. I think in a way he you know he, he didn't have plan b with his career it was like I'm going to be a musician and <laughs> yeah. that's all I know so every 18 months we'll do the album we'll go out on the road then I'll come back probably have a few weeks and then do the next album and and keep it going and and I suppose with a real musician it, that is that is the case and it doesn't really matter as long as you've just got enough money to p- cover the petrol and it and it does does that have a similar sort of resonance with resonate yeah with you? i mean i often say the plan is there is no plan you know and uh, you know it just it, you know it, it it rolls along one way or the other um sometimes as you say you just realize that now it's time to go out and do some more gigs but uh, it's i go back to what i say about the sort of addictive nature of doing gigs as well i think it's sort of in the blood with us now and it, it was in the blood with people like lemmy uh yeah i mean i think we're probably much more aligned with <laughs> lenny's kind of uh, lenny's um on the road philosophy than um than the levelers for instance i mean uh the levelers wisely invested all their money in a studio in brighton and uh kept that going and it sort of established their uh a, you know a, a business and a livelihood alternative livelihood at that in fact we went and recorded much of our new album in their in their studios down in brighton um the men would be much more inclined to blow that money in the most 
the nearest boozer. <laughs> <laughs> and why not? Always a good place to go. That was the second part of my interview with Phil Odgers um, from The Men They Couldn't Hang. And uh, like I said, I've still got a bit more of that interview. But I think we should play a track from their new album. This is titled Sirens and the uh, album is titled Cock-a-Hoop. So, take it away. <laughs> Sirens, and that's from the new Men They Couldn't Hang album, Cock-A-Hoop, which is available, I'm sure, from all good record shops and also online. And I'm sure they'll be selling, selling them at their gig and uh, on their tour. And as I said, they're going to be in Norwich at the end of November, so do check that out. Anyway, this is going to be the third part of my interview with Phil from the band, where we talk about that interesting and sometimes confusing world that is publishing, ownership and administration. I know, I love a bit of admin. Anyway, Phil... How did the men they couldn't hang navigate through those tricky waters? Take it away. Mm, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, looking back on the deals that we signed, that was the you know like like many many bands, uh, we made a lot of mistakes there. Not reading the small print, uh, not understanding uh, the fact that when you go and spend thousands and thousands of pounds recording an album it's not free you're just never ever going to get paid until that debt has been paid back and it won't be paid back until the record company get it out of your four percent share you know but um so really i mean most of the songs have reverted back to us i think we've been quite clever with the songs uh and now we just self-publish um occasionally we 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 license stuff to uh you know someone like cherry red music or someone like that um but in general 
the songs themselves have we've managed to keep those and we've managed to keep sort of tabs on the publishing and the, the prs and so on the records on the other hand i mean even though i've got a silver disc on the wall right behind me now at uh, where we we've made no money at all from from the records very bad decisions all those bands in that in those days made bad decisions to do with the, and they always have you can go back to elvis presley and, and the, the, you know um you know hank williams and so on and and you'll see that uh it's just traditional that people sign bad deals you know yes. when you're surrounded by people who are just waving those bits of paper in front of you with lots and lots of promises it's hard not to Yes, especially especially if you're broke. <laughs> I know. Well, yeah. the, the the famous Colonel Tom Parker. I think um, yes, he yeah. he made yeah. a lot of money. I mean, what would you say to your kind of eighteen year old self? Because you know you've got decades. You know, like over three yeah. and a half decades. What what would you sort of say to the eighteen year old you? I would say protect your ears, <laughs> look after your ears. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I often think about it because I've got kids now coming up to that age and I think, you know, they're both interested in music and um, what it'd be like. I don't, it, I just don't know. I mean, because nothing really changes. I, I, I mean, they would have the advantage of being able to sort of run things, you know, past me to have a look at and I'd probably just say, yeah, sign it. You know? <laughs> but um, as long as I get a bit, give me a cut. <laughs> um I don't know. Just be careful of people around, and always, you know, take take a, a minute to uh, step back and think about it. But any advice that anyone would give you, because I'm sure there were people giving us advice at that time, it's just very hard to to take that advice or to, you know, believe that, uh, or even to believe that what's happening is not going to just stop tomorrow you know that's what i think you think that this is just you're on a on a fast ride and it's it's just all going to come to a halt um just as quickly uh and sometimes it doesn't yes because i know when i sometimes you know watch many documentaries you know on documentaries on music and i remember i think it was a member of the the shadows saying you know i think they were still rocking in the into their 70s and probably still are somewhere in chroma pier probably um Mm. And, you know, and often, you know, every whenever they play a gig, you know, one of them would turn to the other member like, you know, Hank or, and just and they would just smile and they just knew it was like, you know, can you believe we're still doing this? We, we you know, we were doing it when we were 16, 18, thinking we might do it for another year. And here we are, you know, in our 70s, still managing to sort of make this this work i mean and because you've kept quite a solid the solid you know foundation of the band haven't you you haven't lost a lot of members no that's it it's a, uh you know the 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 main bulk of the band is uh is the the same members that it was by the time we did our second uh by the yeah by the second album so um it, you know myself kush and paul are all founder members of the band um ricky the bass player only isn't by two years so he's only been in the band for 32 years instead of 34 <laughs> and some people will still think of him as like the newer, newer person and the one thing we have had like Spinal Tap is we have had so many drummers I can't count anymore and some are on their second or third time around with us you know so um, but apart <laughs> from that the, the kind of the, the core of the band discounting drummers is pretty much the same which is also quite a unique thing Yes, we, well, absolutely. You look, yeah, if you look around at the bands, uh, there might be a lot of bands touring still, um, but if you look at the lineup, some of them might have one person in it from the original lineup. Yeah, I'm, that is really impressive. And obviously, you've got a new album. Is that just about finished now? So that's finished now. Uh, just got the vinyl today myself, um, which was great. So um, it took a long time. Uh, it took us probably about a year longer than we thought we thought it would take about six months <laughs> um but uh, one thing or another in fact yeah i mean one of the things that happened there was that when we started the album the drummer my brother um was diagnosed with liver cancer so he had to have a liver transplant which is successful and now he's back drumming with the band again but um that kind of changed everything and i'd say it even changed the sound of the band so there's a couple more acoustic tracks on there um but um, yeah, you know, it was again. It's just with the, with the men good hangers. It's one of these things we sort of taken our stride. But um, yeah, we're we're very very happy with the album. We did it through Pledge Music, so it's a crowdfunding thing to to kick it off. And um, yeah, just can't wait to get get it out. It comes out on uh, September the seventh, and um, 
yeah, I'll be looking closely to see what sort of feedback we get from that. Yeah, it's interesting actually with crowdfunding because I remember speaking to, I think it's Dave from The Beat, one of the many beats, I think there's two mm, now. Yeah. And, he, and he was doing a crowdfunding thing and he, he sort of mentioned that he felt even more responsible because it was the fans who were giving him the money and the band to do it than just a record label that you just kind of have a love-hate relationship, whereas you suddenly think, God, I'm really, we're going to have to really put together a good one. We can't just go through the motions and do a bit of a B-side here. So did you have a, did, does that feel differently doing a crowdfunded album? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the third one that I've been involved with now. So the, the Medicant Hang did one um, in uh, 2013. I think it was as our first uh, crowdfunding then I did a solo one and then we did this next men they couldn't hang out that way so we're quite used to the process now but I mean for instance what we would do with a you know in the old days um, we'd go to a fantastic studio that was being paid for by the record company or th- so we thought um, we might go and spend you know days in the pub just getting drunk and you know like wasting this studio time just because we thought it was great. Um, we didn't waste a minute with uh, with the stuff we've done from the the crowdfunding. We've got people involved from the pledge campaign. We've got people who you know came to the studio and sort of took part in one way or another, or just watched things unroll in front of them. Um, and we give people a kind of insult to the whole insult. <laughs> an insult. We give them an insight to the whole kind of recording process and even the songwriting process. So, so they see the album kind of evolve right from the very start. So we're getting kind of feedback from uh, the people who have um, pledged to buy the album in advance. Um, we get we're getting their views on it as it grows and um that's something you'd never get and in fact a record company would not nurture that kind of way of working they would advise against it i think they would strongly advise against it at least then however now we're seeing more and more of the big record companies getting involved in crowdfunding which personally i i disagree with i think it's wrong when i see bands like the rolling stones for instance or u2 um you know uh releasing records of one description or another through crowdfunding it just doesn't seem right to me yes that is most bizarre actually (laughs) yeah i think it's probably out of their hands i think it's the record companies that are just releasing or remastering old recordings or live concerts or putting box sets together but um yeah i think it should have been left for something for the bands that have you know, don't have the budget available to to go and spend a lot of money in a studio, but do have a kind of grassroots following. Um, It it covered a really great area that no one had really picked up on before. Yeah, it's fantastic. And just just lastly, because obviously when you sort of, you, you, you formed in the early 80s, I mean, John Peel obviously also picked up on, you know, the band and you did sort of quite a few sessions for him as well, which must have been a fantastic live because when I mentioned about that kind of the great five-year narrative and, you know, it's often for a lot of bands it was just getting played and then possibly a session was just, it gave it that uh, extra sort of push to sort of then be able to go and travel and sort of get noticed elsewhere. So was what were your memories of those sessions? Oh, well, it was just amazing. Uh, I mean, for a start, as a um, as a as a, a young kid listening to sort of punk music when it was first starting up, um, my dream was to be, um, you know, on the John Peel show. And I thought if I could get a record, if I could make a record and get it played on John Peel, that would be it. I'd have made it. That would I'd be quite happy with that, and feel I'd achieved everything I could. So to do a John Peel session, to get played on John Peel to start with, then to do a session and then another and another, and to be, you know, we were in his festive 50, I think we were number three one year uh, with Greenfields of France, and we were number nine or something with Iron Masters the following year. Um, and to have him talking about us on the show, it just, it made you feel so good, you know, um, and we met him once or twice. Um, but I know he did come to a gig early on, which he he didn't go in because he thought it looked a bit too rough. <laughs> but, uh, but no, John Peel was the kind of the pinnacle of things, I think, and we owe so much to to him. And yes. it's funny because yesterday I was sending out CDs to uh, DJs and, and so on, hoping that they'll play the new Medicine Hang album. And I, um, I, I sent one out to um, 
to Tom Ravenscroft, I think, from yes. um, Six Music, who's, um, you know, he's the son, he's John Peel's son. Yeah. And I put a little note in there, but I, and I was just so tempted to say, make a reference to his dad and how much he meant to us. But I thought I didn't want to cross the boundary between, you know, sounding like maybe just trying to yes. try something extra to get him to play it. But uh, I would, I'd like to think that he would listen to to our record i'm sure he'd be aware of the band because of his dad as a young chap you know yes but your fans that come and see you they must be you know you must have see see them sort of come and go and there must be some who probably have never been away but you know it mm. must be very nice having those that connection with your fans it is it's amazing uh you know and we see it in many ways now as a sort of almost like an extension even almost like an extension of the band itself but like a sort of family thing um you know and we do uh, we do the occasional acoustic gig, and um, I did a tour earlier this year, just me and Bobby Valentino, and um, people came up afterwards and they said, "Oh, it's really nice to hear the sort of acoustic side of things." Because actually, we you know we like to sit down now; we, we don't like to stand up all <laughs> evening and jump around. But um, but the weird thing as well is that we, we started seeing an f- influx of younger people uh, coming to the gigs and thought that that was. Uh, curious um but then it turns out that for a lot of them they are the next generation literally they're the the children of the people that were coming to see us you know back in uh, 84 and onwards and they've grown up with that music so they come along with their parents but they're adult they're young adults yes, absolutely you know, and yeah. you know and they're they've sort of literally grown up on our music which is i mean that's just mind-blowing in a way Well, mind-blown, but in a very good way. And that is the last part of my interview with Phil Odgers from The Men They Couldn't Hang. Thank you for the time. Well, give me the time for that interview. And thank you for listening. This is the end of the show. This has been David Easel, The C86 Show. And um, as I said, if you want to contact me, you can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show. And um, as I said, The Men They Couldn't Hang, I'm sure I've probably repeated it several times, are currently on tour and will be in Norwich at the end of the month. They have a new album, Cock a Hoop Out, and obviously lots of their back catalogue still available, so do check it out. Anyway, have a great week, and I'll leave you with your favourite and mine. This is the Green Fields of France. Have a great week. Well, how do you do now? Do you mind if I sit down beside your graveside And rest for a while beneath the warm summer sun I've been walking all day and I'm nearly done Well I see by a gravestone you was only When you joined the Great Fallen of 1916 Well, I hope you died well and I hope you died clean Or Willie McBride was it slow and obscene Did they beat the drum slowly and play the pipe lowly Did they sound the dead march as they lowered you down Did the band sound the last post and chorus Did they pipe the flowers of the forest Did you leave a young wife or a sweetheart behind In some faithful heart are your memories enshrined For although you died back in 1916 In that faithful heart you're forever 19 Or are you a stranger without And closed forever behind a glass plate 
photograph torn, battered and stained. Faded to yellow and brown leather frayed. Did they beat the drum slowly and play the fight lowly? Did they sound the dead march as they lowered you down? Did the band sound the last post and chorus? Did they pipe the flowers of the forest? As the sun beats down on the green fields of France, there's a soft summer breeze makes the red poppies dance. Sun shines from under the clouds. There's no gas, there's no barbed wire, no guns firing now. Oh, but here in this graveyard, it's still no man's land. The countless white crosses stand mute in the sand. And through man's blind indifference to his fellow man To a whole generation who were butchered and dead Did they beat the drum slowly and play the fight lowly? Did they sound the dead march as they lowered you down? They pipe the flowers of the forest. Now, Willie McRoy, I can't help wondering. To those that lie here, no way to die. And did they believe when they answered the call? Did they really believe that this war could end wars? Oh, the sorrow, the suffering, the glory, the pain The killing and dying was all done in vain For young Willie McBride, oh, it happened again And again and again and again and again Did they beat the drum slowly and play the pipe lowly? Did they sound the death march as they lowered you down? Did the band sound the last post and chorus? Did they pipe the flowers of the fall?